Welcome to another episode of Inside Golden State Politics. I'm Bill Boyarski, former city editor and columnist for the Los Angeles Times. And with me is Nancy Boyarski, our producer director. And I'm Sherry Bebich, Jeffy, political analyst and self-styled media maven, coming to you from a state of anticipation, anticipation of June. June will not only bring summer, it marks the finish line of the first lap of L.A.'s mayoral race, a high stakes, high cost election that will ultimately shape the city's policy priorities and political direction for at least next four critical years. And that will have ramifications far beyond LA's boundaries. Attention must be paid. Over to you, Bill. Well, with that stern admonition, uh, <laughs> we, we move ahead. Our guest is Congresswoman Karen Bass. She's one of a half a dozen or more candidates for mayor of Los Angeles. She's represented the 37th Congressional District since 2020. She grew up in the area she now represents, which runs from mid-city uh, out to the west side. She served in the state assembly and was the first African-American woman to serve as speaker in a state legislature. She's the first of the mayoral candidates uh, we'll be talking to. We welcome her here. By the way, the primary is June 7th. Runoff is June 8th. Sherry. No, not June 8th. November, November 8th. Here. Yes. November 8th. Yes. I I'm wish. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry. Yes. Oh, I get to ask the first you question. You get to ask the first question. The first time in the history of the podcast, I get to ask the first question. And here's a question, Congressman. <laughs> It's a question that many politicians can't really answer. Why the hell are you running for this job? <laughs> I actually can answer that. But first, let me just say how happy I am to be on this podcast with two iconic political. Oh, well, I mean it because I've well, known this for, <laughs> for a long time. And both of you are icons in L.A.'s political life. So Thank I was you. so excited to do this. But, you know, especially because you have known me for a long time, mm -hmm. I was not tired of Congress. I was fine in Congress. But I have just become so concerned about L.A. and the direction that the city is headed in, especially dealing with the crisis that we have, a crisis that, you know, I was trying to deal with in the early 90s. And that is, is. people living on the street. And uh, we're waiting to see what the count is going to be. But I think we don't have any reason in the world to think that we are not going to find that there are more than 50,000 people living on our streets in tents, under freeways, in doorways. And I think for so long, the city dealt with this like, okay, we'll do a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, but not with the urgency of we have to solve this problem. So that's why I'm doing it, because I don't want to see L.A. go backwards. I don't want to see a repeat of the policies of the 1990s. How do you do well, it fast? How do you do it? I'm sorry, Bill, go ahead. I was just saying that there you'd be in Congress in a, in a position of, of some power. What is it uh, about the office of mayor of Los Angeles 
that makes you think that you could do more. So many your predecessors have tried. They've they've done this and they've done that. And and as you say, the the tent cities are growing on every street and and in every park. You know, I I don't want to disparage any of my um, any of the former mayors, but I, I will tell you that, and I do think that each of them did a lot. But I do not believe that they had the sense of an urgency. Like, I think this needs to be treated like we just had an earthquake. And you remember the earthquake in 1994. We pulled out all stops. We said nothing is going to stop us from rebuilding that 10 freeway as fast as we possibly can. And we worked, or they worked. I wasn't on the highway. (laughs) They worked 24 hours a day until they got it built. And that's the same kind of urgency, I think, we need to bring to this issue. You know, it's really, really possible to solve the homeless issue. Isn't it at least a bit disingenuous for all of the mayor candidates to toss around numbers and dollar signs and pledge to solve the homeless problem, period? Well, I mean, can you really promise that? What's the yeah. I, well, I think you so. Know, who pays? So, so let me let me just say, I don't think that I personally can solve it within four years. I do not believe that. But what I do believe is that I could set a pathway for this to be solved. That's what I believe. And well, I mean, one, we obviously need to get people off the streets ASAP. And so we do have to do temporary housing. But you know what, Sherry, we need a new model because the congregate way of a, a bunch of cots in a room makes no sense, especially in the the period of COVID. Now, and we still haven't even conquered COVID, but we have to bring in all the ingenuity in the city and come up with a different model of temporary housing, um, you know, where people can be under one roof, but with private, you know, uh, cubicles. And by the way, I've seen some models that, that, that are pretty good. But it's not going to be solved until we make a commitment to deal with the reason why people were unhoused to begin with. Bill, you remember us driving around South L.A. in the 90s, looking at all the liquor stores. We were looking at motels then in the 90s, and we knew that those motels were nothing but drug dens. Well, it took a pandemic for the city to decide to to buy those motels, to take those motels and to use it for temporary housing. We also used to have a whole layer of drug treatment programs where you could go to the program and stay there for a year. We need to bring those programs back. Most of them closed after the Affordable Care Act, some unintended consequences for that policy. So while I'm in Congress, I'm trying to work on the federal piece and we have to have a whole of government approach. And I think that's one of the problems from my predecessors. You have to involve every level of government. So since I'm sitting in the catbird seat, in Washington, D.C. I'm working with HUD and HHS and Homeland Security, HHS Health and Human Services and Homeland Security to see what kind of waivers and resources can we bring to bear on this problem. What happens when you leave them? Can you still what, have the same? When you leave Congress, can you still have the same influence, clout to put this all together the way you, well, you described it? You know, at the end of the day, I do think that what is needed more than anything is leadership, leadership that is absolutely decisive, that is willing to take a risk and willing to make people mad. And so one of the things that I would do, I would work as hard as I can 
But but I've always believed in succession. <laughs> and granted, I mean, an election is what decides. But like, for example, for me, to make a decision not to run for Congress again, I had to know that there was somebody that was going to come after me that was a serious legislator. And I do think that there is somebody running who I believe will win, who is a very serious legislator. And I think that, and I did the same thing when I left the assembly, made sure that there was a serious person to pass the baton to, and that was Holly Mitchell. I think she's shown everybody what a serious legislator she is, and now she's at the Board of Supervisors. Congresswoman, you, at one point, you said that at the end of your first year, you hoped to, uh, find housing for 15,000 That's right. That's right. Where did you get that number? Numbers are being thrown around this debate like confetti. How did you get your 15,000? We got that number through several different sources, and I will break it down and get it for you. Um, One of the first and foremost sources is the fact that we have city, county, state, and federal property that we could build on right away. And bringing the private sector to bear to do the building, as well as a number of the organizations that do housing, but they are never given the resources to get to scale. And one of the things that exists right now, and we don't know how long it's going to exist, uh, but the city and the state does have a lot of money right now, in part because the federal government sent so much money, but um, but that is one way. Making big use of the hotels and the motels, expanding prop, uh, expanding project room key, project home key, looking at those resources. We did the math to break it down because one of the things that I didn't want to do was to just come up with a number. Uh, but I will tell you though that all of us have been on very very heavy pressure to come up with a number. I didn't want to just do that. And so we have it broken down. How many units, how many units. We can also use adaptive um, adaptive use, which means you take commercial properties and change it over to, uh, to residential. Um, so there is definitely a pathway to the 15,000. There's one group of people uh, that numbers really don't describe, and that's the, that's the homeowning group. Yes, the NIMBYs who yes. oppose any who oppose your plans to use city property for for housing for uh, homeless people whose power is so intense that they have succeeded in drumming a very fine city councilman, forcing him out of office. He's going to retire, drumming him into retirement. My phone now. There's a person who did everything right and worked real hard at it. If you're mayor, you're going to have to go out there to those very same people who kicked Mike Bonin out, who are unreasonable, who are angry, who are going to insult you, who are going to start a recall. How are you going to deal with that? Well, let me just tell you, I've met a lot of those people. I've gone out and talked to them. I've spent hours with them, actually. And I think that uh, my good friend, uh, Mike Bonin, I think that, you know, there were several missteps made. I think that you have to bring the community along. Um, you know what? They, they had a number of complaints that I thought were interesting because they blamed him for uh, a lot, 
including the uh, police department not enforcing um, uh, the law, which I don't believe that he had the power uh, to deal with. But, um, you know, I've been, uh, Bill, for example, I've been to Sherman Oaks. Sherman Oaks hates SB9. SB9 is the um, law that allows you, if you own a house, you can add on, you know, two to four units. They hate that. But you know what? They had their own proposal, which I thought was valid. Their proposal is build on the commercial strips. We have a number of dying malls here. Build on, build where the dying malls are. And that way, you know, the point is, is that we need to build the housing. One of the things that I would do that I think could add in at least a thousand more units is to get HUD to relax some of the regulations that HUD has. Again, because our country has not dealt with this like it's an emergency, a lot of the red tape, a lot of the regulations that say, you know, if you've been convicted of something, you can't use a housing voucher, or if you were dishonorably discharged from the military, even though you were a veteran, you have to sleep on the streets. We need to rethink those policies and those policies need to be changed. You know, one of the things that would add a lot of units in would be if you could centralize the building process. So having planning and building and safety and all of those departments all over the place where you're going to build luxury apartments, you have to go through the same process as somebody who's trying to house the homeless. I think if you're trying to house the homeless, you need to be at the front of the line. As a matter of fact, not just at the front of the line, you need to have your own special line. So I think that there are several things that can be done. We can also look at innovative housing. You know, the tiny homes is one idea. I have a few issues with the tiny homes, especially as it relates to women and children from a safety point of view. But, um, but I do think that we bring all of those ideas to the table and we can get things done. Where's the table? The table is in the mayor's office. That's where oh, the table is. Okay. The I just table, and, and the person at the head of the table is the mayor. The oh. person sitting right next to me is my chief commander for homelessness. You're <laughs> have a homeless yeah. star, huh? Absolutely. Deputy mayor. Yes. Whatever that title is, it will be the person that will be in charge, that will be what meeting the with council me. in all of this. Well, we'll be meeting with the beginning and the end of the governing. Well, you know, the city council and, um, and, and most of the people on the city council, not all, but most of the city council folks I know, several of them I served with in Sacramento, and you guys know politics better than anybody. It's about relationships. And one of the things that is different about me is that I have relationships with folks from, for decades. And um, the five supervisors, I know very, very well, enough to call them personal friends. I also know those county departments and agencies because I've worked with them. You know, I've worked on foster care. I've worked on criminal justice. I know these departments. And one of the things that the city suffers from, which makes me nuts, is this city-county divide. And there's no really particular reason for it. It just is. Well, that's just not good enough. What do you what what do you feel about the proposal that's been made by uh, Councilman DeLeon to uh, construct a city health department? Isn't that doing exactly the opposite? It of is what you're talking about. It is doing exactly the opposite. But not only that, it adds to the notion that this is not an emergency that we can take our time oh, because boy. you know how. I mean, if we were going to develop our own department, that could take a decade. 
<laughs> I mean, but, but, but I do think it's a valid idea. And what I would do is I would commission a study. Why? Because I'm not in a hurry for a public health department, but I'm in a big hurry to get people off the streets. Mm-hmm. So you don't commission studies if you think that there's a crisis going on and you can't do a public health department without studying it. I mean, it just would take tons of time, but it's moving in the opposite direction. We already have a health department. The county health department. Exactly. The county health department. How do you feel about their exercising the regulatory powers that they now exercise? Isn't that going to slow things up too? Exactly. Well, but you know, and, and let me tell you that this is not something for a day one emergency, but it is something that has to be dealt with. And that is the whole governance, the whole structure, the whole way this, because the system is not designed to actually end the problem. The system is designed to make the problem a little better. Congresswoman, talking about the system, you know, you've said, and some of your opponents have said, uh, Congresswoman, that people are afraid in Los Angeles. They're afraid to go out and walk along the streets. And it is true that you walk along the streets, you leave your house, and uh, and there are all these homeless encampments. There's a a fear of crime, Mm -hmm. smash and grab robberies. There's a fear of violence. There's a feeling that uh, the police department, the city, has got to do something to alleviate this fear of crime. What would you do? Well, you know what I would do? On day one, I would hire civilians who can sit in the behind the desks where police officers are so that we could get officers on the street ASAP. Now, at the same time as I would do that, I would hire from two to 400 officers. And, and I say two to 400 because I would address the number of officers that are leaving for one reason or another. Most of them is retirement. Right now, we are budgeted for 9,700 officers. In any given month, we're two to three, two to 400 down. So I would move to immediately replace them. But you know what, Bill? It is very hard to replace officers. One, they can't even fill a class, a recruitment class today. A recruitment class, don't, don't hold me to this, I think it's around 40. And if I'm not mistaken, LAPD typically has about 23 uh, officers in a class. So they're having trouble recruiting for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's not the most attractive profession right now, but two, because the personnel department had to lay off, not lay off, call for early retirement at the beginning of COVID because the city thought they were going to have a huge deficit. They didn't believe that the federal government would actually come through and bail out the city, which the federal government did do. So a number of people took early retirement. That's caused a backlog in recruiting. So if you want to get officers on the street ASAP, hire civilians and send the ones that are already trained to go back on the beat, obviously the ones that are appropriate. The other thing is, and Bill, this is what Bill and Sherry, this is what you know have known me to do for many years, and that is focus on preventing the problem. So invest in those communities with proven strategies to prevent and reduce crime. As a matter of fact, an example is, you know, this, these gangs that were just uh, arrested, they just found out about them doing the drive home robberies. Well, I've been talking to the chief pretty regularly for months about these crimes because I've always been interested in crime trends. Why are they happening? How can we stop it? Blah, blah, blah. 
And so one of the things that he told me over a year ago, this was, you know, at the height of COVID, he said that they have, you know, all of the gang prevention work kind of went dormant with COVID. Well, surprise, surprise, we have a new, we have a, a, a spike in, in gang crimes. And so I would deal with those guys that committed those crimes. And obviously they need to be held fully accountable. But at the same time, I want to lift up resource-wise the gang prevention programs. And by the way, I was able to get several of those groups funded in my district a couple of weeks ago with federal funds because they allow us to do community projects now. And I was able to get them uh, federal uh, funding. Can we, can we do a couple of like pure political questions now? You know me, I, the political behavior is my, my kind of thing. And I've just been, um, you know, watching the polls and where some voters are going and some voters are not. And I was just wondering, Congresswoman, do you want to, can you, is it part of your campaign strategy to recreate the late L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley's successful political coalition, West Side Liberals and the Black community? Are you thinking that are you well, doing that? I, I see broadly a lack of energy well, that, in this campaign, I have to say. What's going on? Yes. Well, hold oh, your horses because we're coming along. That's right. <laughs> we're kicking off and opening up our campaign office on April 30th, and you will see that energy and you will see that coalition. But you know what? It's not about a black white coalition uh -huh. anymore. It's about black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American. It's about everybody. And I have lived my life with that coalition. Uh, that's how I, when I started Community Coalition in 1990, it was deliberately built as an African-American Latino organization. I've worked for decades in the Asian Pacific Islander community. And so to me, it is about bringing all of our communities together around the idea, not the idea, but the belief and the knowledge that we have the skills, we have the resources, we have the ingenuity in this city to address these problems. I worry, though, about a campaign that is built on fear that describes L.A. as going to hell in a handbasket. And anytime you have campaigns like that, it brings out the worst in people and it leads to really bad policies. So I want to inspire folks, bring them together and say that this is the greatest city in the world. We love L.A. and we know that we can deal with these problems. Are any of your opponents doing that, creating a climate of fear? Well, oh, yes. I think that um, there has been a climate of fear uh, by uh, a, a couple of candidates. But, you know, I am going to choose to do something that is very, very different. But I will tell you, it was one of the main things that pulled me into the race was like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't go back to the 90s. We can't do this again. I know how this movie turns out and it's really bad. And uh, I do know that there is a sentiment in this city and I don't blame people at all where people are so tired of seeing these encampments, they're just so tired of hearing about crime that they just want it all to go away. And that's when politicians, to me, lie. That's when politicians make people believe that they have the magic wand, they can deal with it, just hand me the keys, and, and I will just you know take care of everything. I believe in being honest with people and saying, this is what I can do, this is what I can't do, but I also believe in inviting people to come along with me because we have to get rid of the notion that elected officials are magic, are magicians. 
So it's not just about 15 members of the council, a mayor and five supervisors. It's about 4 million people. That's what it's about. And we need to, we need to seize and capture the expertise in this city and bring people to the table. And I will tell you, the business community is right there, very much interested in resolving this problem. The social service sector, the people who've been toiling seven days a week addressing the, the, the homeless situation that know how to address it, but they're never resourced. They're never really given what they need to get to the scale to deal with the problem this big. You know, that's a, an awfully big wish, don't you think? I wonder, and, and I think what, what you said about leadership really should be thought about, but is there the political will among the voters, among all of the interest groups, among all of the electeds, to do it really honestly, well, first tell the voters what really has to be done to solve the problems of Los Angeles, honestly and in reality. I don't think that political will exist in a vacuum. I do think that a campaign can help create the political will. I also think a campaign can destroy the political will as well and say, you know what? Just to, just leave it to me. I'll take care of it. None of you guys are are really necessary. Uh, I just don't believe in that. I believe in democracy. And democracy's messy. And that means I want everybody to come along and I understand it's going to be messy, but that's the way to really solve the problems. I would never paint myself as the savior. Congresswoman, how does how does a campaign sap the will of the electorate? What what does a candidate do to, to, to sap the will? And what does a candidate do to elevate and stimulate the will? Oh, I think you sap the will with, with negative negativity, with gloom and doom, with, you know, the city is falling apart. You know, we, we, it's, it's awful here and we need to get our city back. I think all of those things sap the will out of people because it leaves people feeling hopeless. Or it leaves people believing in, you know, I'm hopeless, but I need a superhero. So I need one person who's going to come across, who's going to come around and solve it. They don't need me. Um, I think that the, I think that's what it does. I think what builds the political will is for people to understand that there is a role for them to play. That's why I've never really subscribed much to apathy, because to me, if you can't motivate people, then you got better look at what you're doing, <laughs> as opposed to saying that people won't do this and people won't do that. I find that people are dying to be involved. They just want you to help them figure out what role they can play. And they don't have a lot of time. So give me something to do that won't take up all of my time, but will allow me to feel like I'm contributing and I'm participating. Congresswoman, thank you very much for joining us. We, we, appreciate, we appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thank you. Well, you have to promise me you'll invite me back. We and maybe will. we'll just do it between the two of us. The girls will take charge. I really <laughs> want to know how you put together the speakership vote when there has never been oh. an African-American woman, <laughs> let alone in California, but throughout the nation. To be I'd love to but tell you we that. We don't have time today. <laughs> we'll have to come back and do it later. All right. That's the deal. It's wonderful seeing Thank both you. of you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Cheers. That's how we end it. <laughs> mm -hmm.